Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Kerrang's Inside Track, where the world's biggest artists tell the stories behind the most influential moments in rock history. Every part of it, though, was more and more implausible, where I find myself in, in these situations at the time where, you know, for, we're playing, you know, sporting events and we played for Obama, you know, like whatever. Like these are crazy things that don't make any sense. But the Im- improbability of it all was so overwhelming for me. You know, because it's not a part that I had ever prepared for. I had always prepared to be a musician. I thought I was going to be a mu- musician. And it was very stressful, is the point I was going to make, is that it was incredibly stressful to live that. In a lot of ways, it was kind of like being a child star or something, where you, you, you weren't re- I wasn't really emotionally ready for that. That was vocalist Patrick Stump, speaking about the debilitating impact of success on his band, Fall Out Boy, and the reason they collectively decided to go on hiatus in 2009. At the time... The band were one of the most famous rock groups on the planet, but their status came at a price. Patrick was just a teenager when Fall Out Boy formed in 2001, and eight years later, he was struggling to deal with the roller coaster ride that had propelled them from the Chicago punk underground to multi-platinum sales and number one albums. Conscious of his own body image, Patrick began to feel increasingly ill at ease in the spotlight. Simultaneously, bassist Pete Wentz was going through an equally tough time. Having struggled with well-publicized anxiety issues from a young age, Pete was self-medicating. He was also in a high-profile relationship with singer Ashley Simpson, whom he would marry in 2008. Fall Out Boy as a whole, including lead guitarist Joe Troman and drummer Andy Hurley, were experiencing difficulties communicating over their creative process as they struggled to navigate the pressures of a changing music industry. While early albums like their 2003 debut, Take This to Your Grave, and major label efforts from Under the Cork Tree and Infinity on High had established them as a major league act. The band's fourth album, 2008's Folie Deux, appeared to have stalled commercially. Meanwhile, Patrick bristled at the fact that the press continued to label his music as emo, despite his band's stylistic evolution, one which, on occasion, divided even their fan base. As a collective, it was clear that Fall Out Boy were close to imploding. Circumstances, however, dictated otherwise the four-piece would overcome their hardships, both individually and as a band, to rise again and come back stronger than ever. While most bands are incapable of reacting to the pressures around them, Fall Out Boy were astute enough to realize that they desperately needed a break. And so... Following a triumphant sold-out show at New York City's Madison Square Garden on October 4th, 2009, the band stepped off the touring treadmill and walked in different directions. Guitarist Joe Troman recalls the disillusionment of that time. I always wanted to know, like, how things, like, how the sausage got made. But, like, on on a punk level, like, what it was like to play, like, these shitty clubs and hang out in the shitty backstage 
rooms and uh, I can't I can't even think of words uh, dressing rooms is what they're called and uh, just and just and see what it feels like to play these these shows and these clubs. Uh, then I saw how the sausage really got made and, uh, and on the real on the real scale and I was like, oh, this is I don't like all the parts that go into the sausage. <laughs> this also is not the sausage I eat, um, but I'm eating it. Oh, it's I feel very sick. <laughs> um, no, but 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 that but that is how it is. It's it's the wizard's curtain. You see behind it, and it's like nothing at what you had expected. Um, and uh, I think that was just it. Just it'll fuck you up if you're a child, <laughs> which is sensibly we were. Patrick and I were the ones that felt we we were more outward about going. We need a break. Yeah, it was exhausting. And for I both think of us. Um, Pete didn't realize he needed a break, um, and he totally did, and it was great for him. And I think Andy's a strange cat. We're like, um, and I mean this in in a good way, where he's kind of could give like a master class of, uh, on being in a band, where he's just like. He's always down, he's always go with the flow, and he's very much like of this malleable puzzle piece that could fit into any band situation and not ruffle feathers and be happy because he just wants to like he's, he's a great he, he wants to be a great drummer and and be and and, 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 and being and, and be in bands and especially being in a big band and being a great drummer, that that's great. So maybe he didn't need to break the, the break seat. I think he just went and did more bands. <laughs> but 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 I think we all um, we're being pushed too hard, we're working too often, and I think we had no grounding, you know, like there was no like, oh, this is where I live, this is my family, this is my house, here's where I get mental health assistance, um, I take my medication this many times a day. None of that stuff was happening. It, it was all just go, 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 different places, different things. You have to do this. If you want to succeed, you have to do this. And we got to a point where I, I, I can only, I can speak for myself here. I go, I think we did, we've succeeded. Can we like, uh, can we stop for a minute? I, I like need to like, I need to go to my house. The most visible member of the band, bassist Pete Wentz, had described Fall Out Boy's decision to take a break as a hiatus rather than a permanent split. Today, he remains brutally honest about the emotional state in which he found himself at that time. I mean, I think I was at like a really transitional time in my life. You know what I mean? Like I just like the band was taking a break. My relationship kind of like imploded. Not too long, a couple of years after that. It was just like finding like, like, who are you? Like if so much of your life is like, I'm the guy in this band that like does this in this band and then all of a sudden you're just not in this band anymore. It's like a little bit of a, it's like a shock, you know? But I think that following that in like 2011, 2012, I found like real, like real happiness that was like real pure. It like wasn't based, it didn't have like the texture of this band within it. So I would think I was, I had, I was apprehensive to do the band again. But I think it was like finding that you can find like joy with these guys that's like beyond what it was, you know, 15 years ago. Like it's like different, you know what I mean? Which is pretty cool, you know? For all four members of Fall Out Boy, the years away from the band led to moments of self-examination and in some cases, the questioning of self-worth. As individuals, they embarked on assorted musical projects, attempting to shake off the past without ever really losing the common experiences they'd lived through. In early 2012, Pete contacted Patrick about the possibility of making music again. And so, the delicate process of healing the wounds of the past began. Key to that was evolving once again into new territory. Thus began a string of studio albums that kicked off in 2013 with Save Rock and Roll, the title track of which featured a guest appearance by Elton John. American Beauty, American Psycho would follow in 2015, and Mania would arrive in 2018. 
All three albums possessed their own distinct musical character, and all three debuted at number one in the U.S., with similar success around the world. Each of these albums also yielded a string of hit songs along the way, including My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark, Light Em Up, Centuries, Uma Thurman, and Immortals, all of which are included on the band's second greatest hits compilation, Believers Never Die Volume 2, the sequel, naturally, to Believers Never Die Volume 1, released back in 2009 under very different circumstances. Symbolically, this second collection completes Fall Out Boy's resurrection, defying the expectations of the band members themselves, as vocalist Patrick Stump freely admits. I thought it was crazy because the first one says volume one, yeah? It says that on it, I think. And I thought that was a joke. I thought that, you know, I mean, I, I thought it was cool. I was like, yeah, you put it on there, but it's like History of the World Part One. I didn't think it was going to be a real thing. And like the odds of having the second act that we got are just so infinitesimally small that it's, it's still crazy to me where I'm like, it's beyond surreal. It's like, it, it's almost, sometimes I wake up and I'm like, kind of, I kind of laugh because I'm like, that's just, it's just, it feels so improbable. <laughs> like it feels so ridiculously unlikely to me. But then I guess it's also one of those things where I think a lot of times the people around us have been, you know, have really believed in it at times, you know, I don't know. I think whatever, we've had this thing where I don't often know what I'm good at or what I'm doing or whatever. And like, and you're like, that's the thing, do that. And I'm like, I don't, sure. I don't, I'll trust you, whatever. But I feel like that's been a lot of my, a lot of this, a lot of the career has just been like, like, how did we get here? If Patrick's self-doubt is countered by Pete's more pragmatic approach to making music, Fall Out Boy's musical endeavors in the last six years have been characterized by a sense of restless development. Having long outgrown the emo tag, They've incorporated elements of pop, soul, and ska into their more recent records. At the heart of their sound, though, the ability to write big, anthemic choruses remains, as Patrick acknowledges. So I, I've always admired ACDC, but I feel like that's one way to do things, and we're not that kind of band where it's like you can't... If we were to put out a record that sounded like our last record, something's up. You know, I mean, some, something's not right at that point. So, so I, I feel like, to your, to your point, like that's kind of become, it's always been part of who we are. I don't think we really intended it even. It's just kind of part of, like we were talking about, even Corktree is like really all over the place. It's so funny to me how different every, if you look at a Queen Greatest Hits, it is all over the place musically. I mean, and you don't question it at all because after the fact, you're like, well, I just love Queen and I like those songs. And so I don't really think about how weird, crazy little thing called Love's is next to Another One Bites of Dust, next to Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, I mean, it's it's all over the place. Bowie, Elvis Costello, like Prince, like like so many of these artists have the have just this breadth of 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 history that none of it sounds even similar, you know? And so not to say that I, I go for that, but I mean like we we like we grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s and like we're we're that was what was happening was a lot of it's weird it's kind of come back around this idea of the now they call it shuffle or whatever but like it's it's always been something with who we are the musical diversity on believers never die volume two underlines fallout boys resilience ambition and renewed impetus each track however comes with its own story which is why we asked the band to reveal the inspiration behind every song on the compilation starting with the opener my songs know what you did in the dark light them up 
the video for which sees the symbolic torching of the band's back catalog. Here's Patrick and then Joe on the creation of that song. Yeah, well, I think, you know, that song was really funny because we didn't really necessarily know that we were going to do a comeback. We had this one song. We didn't even really know that we were going to have a record, but the song internally, it was like, okay, let's get together and see if we do anything, see if anything works out. And we do the song together, and it just started moving. Like, literally the day we posted it, you know, we played a show and we did a video. It was like all at once. And up to that point, I wasn't really sure we were going to do anything. But then it's like, well, we're already here. I guess we got to do it, you know. Um, but yeah, that song's funny. It's, um, uh, it shares a title with a long forgotten, um, uh, like, demo for, a, for, a, for one of the records. We had, a, we had a song at some point called My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark that it has no other relation other than I just remembered the line and I was like, I like that lyric. I'll, I'll bring that back. I mean, it represents exactly what you said. It's just, <clears throat> it was uh, the band's return after four years of not being a band. It marked the return. Uh, I don't think we assumed, because you know, you have to keep in mind, so the four years prior to coming back, the music industry was a different beast and was still in America um, somewhat interested in, in bands and guitars and, and things of that nature. And then we stopped doing Fall Out Boy and we came back four years later and that was not of interest in America, especially on pop radio. So uh, we had no idea people would care about us. We started kind of aging out of, because you get old, things get older, people get older, creatures get older. Uh, <laughs> you start aging out of um, youth. And so, um, I mean, there wasn't, at least I, I can only speak from a personal place, I wasn't too concerned about aging out, but um, I think there was kind of some wonderment about whether or not um, <clears throat> we would make any sort of impact whatsoever when we Yay. came back. So then the song made an impact and people were excited and we got this whole new uh, younger fan base out of it too. So it was really, um, it was like the, the mark, like the literal, if you, if you need to like, put a checkpoint next to a point, a part of Fall Boy's history that marked the 2.0 that that song would be it, I guess. It was a guess. big, big surprise. I used to work at a used record store, you know, and, and uh, used record stores are fun because you get everyone's mistakes, because that's not, those are the ones people don't want to keep, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so I felt like I had a pretty good handle on how bands work, where it's like, you know, you, they, you get one shot and that's kind of it. Um, the, the, yeah, the idea that we were ever going to put that record out and it was going to be, you know, anywhere near as big as it was, was, I would have thought, comical. Despite Patrick's first-hand knowledge of the great record-buying public, Fall Out Boy have always sought to challenge their audience, a point made clear on The Phoenix, the distinctly poppy opening track on their comeback album, Save Rock and Roll, and the second tune included on Believers Never Die, Volume 2. Phoenix was... Uh, was my baby on that record. I, I really pushed for it, and I really pushed for it to be what it was. The only compromise I made was at some point, um, everyone said, we like the song, we don't like the chorus. And I was like, what? That's the whole song. Every song builds to the chorus. You don't like the chorus, that's like saying you don't like the song. I don't get it. And, um, and so I tried like 40 different choruses on that on that song. So, you know, basically from the, from the downbeat all the way up to the first chorus, it was identical, you know, from my, my very first demo. But, you know, dun, dun, what comes after that? And I, and I did like a million different ones. 
and um, and yeah, and Phoenix, the, the that chorus had been another idea that I had written and couldn't find a song for, and I just kind of threw it in there, not thinking. You know, I, I was pretty sure that wasn't going to be the one, and then it totally worked, and it really, I think it kind of defined the record in a lot of ways for me. I feel like if that song wasn't there, I don't think I would have really been so gung ho to even do a record because I feel like it needed, it needed something directionally. The album did that was like, hey, we're Fall Out Boy. We're this, we're still the same Fall Out Boy that this did is Infinity. what the record's gonna yeah. kind of sound like. Yeah. Track three of Volume Two is the open-hearted earworm "Alone Together." the third single on 2013's Save Rock and Roll, which certified platinum two years later. Here's Patrick. Alone Together was a really strange one. Our manager, who has these, these very Yoda-like, just really brilliant moments of wisdom, he, I had had like 15 different little parts of songs. And he goes, Patrick, just for me, could you try putting this part with this part? I just want to see what happens, right? I'm like, I don't know. They don't make any sense together, but fine. And I, and I, I took a pre-chorus and a chorus and put them together. And all of a sudden, it, it just totally conceptualized. It, it like totally coalesced. By the end of it, I think it's five different song ideas that I had had that after he did it, I was like, well, I'll try it again. I'll try this part from this, this song and this part from this song. So... It's, it's, it's another reason why going through our B-sides is more of an educational thing than a fun thing because like usually by the time we put out a record, I've, I've you know, cannibalized most of the songs that didn't make it. So I don't like to waste anything. I had to learn how to sing differently after that song because it was so high and we were, they had us playing on like morning shows and stuff. And it's one thing to sing, sing in a studio and it's another thing to sing at a show even. But singing at five in the morning is not... You know, really the same vibe. You're, you're, you have physical limitations. And I couldn't, I, up to that point, I had been a totally self-taught singer. And, and uh, I really hurt my voice on like the Today Show or one of those shows doing Alone Together. And after that, I, I went and learned proper like opera technique stuff. Because I was like, because I was like, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to hurt, I don't want to hurt my voice every day. So it's kind of neat for me because it's like, that was where I learned I think at that point, I was also kind of, you know, you, you kind of get to a point in adulthood where you're like, okay, fine, I'll, I'll eat my vegetables. You know, you're kind of like, okay, fine, I'll learn something about how to sing properly, you know, rather than just you trusting my ears or whatever. The fourth track is the feel-good and lyrically mischievous Young Volcanoes. Another tune from the Save Rock and Roll era, it was originally intended to be an acoustic track, but the band ultimately opted for a more polished version of the song. Here's Patrick again. Joe and I had demoed a, a very elaborate version of that song, um, a much more like uh, Lust for Life kind of up-tempo thing. I yeah, I remember that because that was what I intended for it. Um, and and uh, we put this thing together, but in showing it to everybody else, I had done just an acoustic version, just me and an acoustic guitar. And I even, in the demo, I was like, I don't know what the first line of the verse is, so just da 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 but we'll put something there. And uh, Butch took my demo, and he was like, no, he doubled that part where I was just like mumbling that. And, and, uh, and he, and he kind of built this drum groove underneath it. And I'm like, no, that's not the song that I had. I had this whole idea. And he's like, no, just, let's just try this. And we tried it and, it, and it was great, and it worked, and it was really funny. And... Um, and I really did laugh in the in in the vocal take when I said the uh, how to make boys next door 
out of assholes or whatever, out of assholes, and 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 uh, and then I laugh, and that really is me laughing because I, I that was the first time I'm reading that because Pete uh, had said I was like I need more lyrics for the second verse, and I was trying second verses, <laughs> and I'm in the and I'm in the booth, and I sang it, and I got to it, and I'm like, and I'm like, all right, you know, so and and I thought it was fun that Butch kept the laugh in there. Track five on volume two is Centuries, a celebration of empowerment that preceded the release of American Beauty, American Psycho. Back in 2014, the song became Fall Out Boy's fourth single to hit the top 10 on the Billboard chart in eight years, and, it should be noted, was also nominated for a Kerrang! Award for Best Single. It's also a tune which sparked a rare sense of certainty in Patrick Stump. Centuries was one of the only ones I've ever been, like, really sure of. You know, usually I'm not too sure of any of the songs. I'm like, I don't know. And, and Centuries, we, we finished that one, and I'm like, this is, this is just great, and I think it's going to be really fun. I just knew there was a there's a little moment in there somewhere. Um, we were doing like vocal overdubs, and there was some harmony, like some multi-layered harmony in there. And just as I was doing it, like I was like, this came together really nice. You know, I I remember being in the studio and being like, this this feels like something. It, it's had a weird life uh, because I kind of I kind of you know, that era was kind of a blur for us. Basically, when we did uh, Save Rock and Roll, from the minute we dropped, it was February, I remember, we dropped the record, or dropped the song, and then we were just out for three years or something. It was a really weird kind of blur, blurred edge to centuries where I'm like, oh yeah, that was American Beauty, American Psycho, that wasn't Save Rock and Roll, because like, it all, for us, kind of happened all at once, you know, like, the way that it, it was a, you read about bands in the 70s doing like two albums a year. It yeah. wasn't that, but it felt like yeah, that. Yeah, I think sometimes, I forget which record that song is on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As with all major artists of their generation, Fall Out Boy had previously attempted to contribute to various film soundtracks. The song Immortals provided them with their entry into that world when it first appeared on the soundtrack to Disney's Big Hero 6, the 3D animated superhero film. Of course, it was also subsequently included on American Beauty, American Psycho. Immortals was just fun. Immortals was, uh, was um, we had done a lot of film stuff. Uh, over the years, and none of it ever made it anywhere. You know, I, I I think back on all the all the movies I've worked on, and and like we've been in like two. You know, for real, like when you actually 
but you know, I, I forget songs we worked on or, or, or whatever, you know, th things that the band was attached to. There's little bits and pieces of things that, that make it to records or whatever. But Immortals was crazy because it was Disney, so I was terrified because I'm like, well, that's going to be like, they're the biggest one, so they'll be the scariest one. And they were like so incredibly hands off. They're like, no, we like what you do. Just do your thing. Here's the scene. Do you want to see the scene? I mean, Disney has a good track record yeah. of making good things, and I think they know uh, when they're sure about an idea, they seem to, uh, you know, sure about an idea and working with some type of artist to make that idea happen. Um, they know exactly what they want, and they know they've hired that artist to do their thing. It was, it was amazing, and we just basically got to watch this rad movie that I would have watched anyway <laughs> and write a song for it. And that was really exciting and really fun. Um, and I, uh, and um, the, I get a lot of joy out of, because I don't really write lyrics myself. I don't write lyrics for myself. I have no, I, I have nothing that I think, I have no thoughts of my own that I think are so compelling that the, that the world needs to hear them. But I really love character. I really love when, when I've had to write in character. And that was one of the first times that I had that experience. Um, so I was pulling from Pete's lyrics to try and find something that fit the narrative. And it was really funny because, um, because I had kind of put together some of those lyrics before the, before the song existed. It was just, they felt like something. And I demoed it to, to Disney and they were like, that's amazing. That's like, right with, that's like exactly our, our characters in her monologue. And so, uh, but I, I ended up, that's one of the rare instances of me writing anything is I wrote, I wrote like the chorus lyric or whatever, which I felt just kind of, you know, was a, a nice summary of like Pete's feelings and the character's feelings, you know, because it's really about hero and whatever. So it was really inspired. It's weird because Pete's lyrics probably weren't directly inspired by, by the film, but what I, the way I compiled them were. So it was a, it was a really fun experience. Immortal stands out for me for that reason. It was like a, just a really neat experience. Track seven, the song Uma Thurman, was obviously inspired by the star of Kill Bill, actress Uma Thurman. Uma would later go on the Today Show to reveal that the band had asked her permission to use her name before releasing the song. As she explained, I said, sure. It's unbelievably polite and gracious of them. So sweet. I'm so happy for their big success. The birth of the song itself, however, was more problematic than it sounds. Uma Thurman was another one that I, I won't take credit for um, because... I didn't understand it. I had it, I had all the parts together, but I didn't understand the song, I didn't see the song. I would say that song was very heavily guided by uh, Jake Sinclair, our, our producer on that song, uh, because he did a lot of like, I, I had written, that's another one where I wrote so many pieces of that song, so many chunks of that song, and I'm like, I don't know where it goes, I don't know what goes where, and he basically took what I had written as like Legos and kind of like constructed it. And then there's a lot of connective tissue. I feel like when you, when you got to it, Joe, the, uh, the, a lot of what you did guitar wise made it make sense to me. Yeah, I like it just because I like a lot of the weird like um, John Reese kind of like Rocket from the Crypt, Hot yeah. Snakes, Drive Like Jehu and stuff. And he always seemed to really like surf guitar. Then he made a surf guitar record not that long ago. And so I think I got it from just like um, back, in a backwards way through punk rock. Irresistible, the eighth track on Believers Never Die Volume 2, is a tune that, according to Pete Wentz, boasts an unlikely punk rock sensibility. 
reminding him of a scene from Alex Cox's 1986 biopic, Sid and Nancy, the film that chronicles the ill-fated relationship between Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy Spungent. When I think of Irresistible, Pete said, it brings this image to my head, whether it's fictional or real, of Sid and Nancy in an alley, garbage raining down on them in an eternal spiral of romance and poison. Sometimes it's hard not to love what can hurt us the most, Pete told Digital Spy. That image is perhaps at odds with the track's obvious pop groove, which was expanded further in a remix featuring a guest appearance by Demi Lovato. Here's Pete. There was a Drake song that had come out that had these, this kind of horn section intro. I can't remember exactly what song it was. But me and Patrick had talked about it, and he'd said he'd had a song that was kind of had a similar vibe. I mean, I think hearing it the first time, I was like, oh, this is interesting because it's like old Fallout Boy with like new Fallout Boy production, you know, which is an interesting take. I think we were also like trying to, with American Beauty, like make a record and make songs that were almost as quickly as back to back with the album before as possible. And this song like kind of fit right into that. And then we talked about the idea that like in order for like what would give this song, what would be kind of like counterintuitive for a Fall Boy song uh, at the time. And it seemed like having like a different perspective within the song made sense. And that was what we talked about originally with um, having Demi sing on it. And I think like me and Patrick went to the studio in Hollywood uh, where she sang it. And she literally is one of the most talented, singularly like vocal person, people that I've ever met. Like it was just like one take, just bizarre to watch how good it was. Demi Lovato joins a list of Fall Out Boy collaborators that includes Courtney Love, John Mayer, Steve Aoki, Brendan Urie, Jay-Z, and on Champion, the ninth track included on Believer's Never Die Volume 2, the enigmatic pop star Sia, who co-wrote the song. The track is also accompanied by a video that features more of the band's famous friends. Sia's like a friend of mine from, uh, I don't know, years back when I was doing Black Cards, I'd like written with her a little bit, and she has such an interesting perspective. We started writing together, and I had come up with the idea for Champion, uh, which was like an original idea of hers. She's got an interesting perspective. And... Uh, uh, when we were writing that song, I felt like we needed, you know, like, I think Young and Menace was such a, like, it was like a refresher. It was like when you go out to, uh, you know, like when you, you go to, I guess, like wine tasting or something or like per smelling perfumes and like you smell coffee grounds in between, you know, like I think that Young and Menace was like the coffee grounds in between. It like just resets you a little bit. And this song was... Uh, more in the wheelhouse of Fall Out Boy. At the same time, I remember when we made the song, I think originally we, we, we shot the video in a skate park in, uh, in Los Angeles at the barracks. And uh, Post Malone like, had hit me up, and he's uh, a, f a friend. And so he was in the video and liked the song. And then I remember talking to Jaden, who I think we all think is just brilliant and uh, super future thinking. And he was in the video for the song and it was just one of those ones where like, when you, like, you know, like the camera just loves certain people and it definitely like loves Jaden Smith. You know, like he is just very natural on it, which is really cool to watch. From their first steps playing shows for pizza rather than money to their decision to go on hiatus rather than split up, 
chance has played an important role in Fall Out Boy's story. The same is true of their songwriting, a point made clear by track 10 on volume 2, The Last of the Real Ones, which, according to Pete, is also, quote, the closest thing to a love song we've had, but still pretty fucking twisted. Patrick picks up the story. I would just say Last of the Real Ones was one of those ones that I had, I had uh, we've been working um, with a producer named Elangelo, and he had been, you know, he had been playing song ideas. And I'm pretty resistant to other people's song ideas. I want to I write the songs, you know. And he had been playing all these song ideas, and I was kind of like, hmm, that's not for me, that's, that's not for me, that's not for me. And then he was just cycling through stuff, and he played this little piano loop, and that was all it was, was just this little, this little piano loop. There was no anything. And he was like, oh, that was, that's, I haven't done anything with that. And kind of go, I'm like, no, 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 go back to that, go back to that. And he's like, oh, yeah, this thing. I'm like, and I'm like, I, I, it was almost like a trance where, where, because I had read some lyrics that Pete had written uh, just before that, and we had to go. It was like, I had to beat traffic. So I was like, well, thanks for playing that, bye. And I, I get in the car, and I wrote the entire song in the car just off of that piano riff. Um, you know, by the time I got home, I had a whole, I had a bridge. I had everything. I, it was pretty funny. I, I'm super illegal. I shouldn't do this or even admit to doing this, but I would be at stoplights looking at lyrics. If Fall Out Boy have found themselves driven by insecurities on occasion, the mark they've left on music is underlined by I've Been Waiting the 11th track on their second greatest hits compilation. Released posthumously by Lil Peep and featuring and produced by McConan, the track showcases the band's impact on modern music. Here's Pete again. I thought that song was really important. Um, before Peep had passed away, I'd reached out to him maybe a couple months before, and I just think he, he had a really important voice, and I also think he had a lot more to say, you know? Um, we got McConan reached out and was like, you know, I got the song and, you know, and I was like, I don't know, you know, like it doesn't like other people's legacies. And when an artist has passed away, it's like it can be like a little bit tricky because you're like, did this artist want to? And he sent me this interview that people done. And he was like, well, if I could describe my sound, I was, you know, half Fall Out Boy, half McConan, you know, and I was like, wow, that's like it is like calling to you. You know what I mean? And so it felt like it would be strange to not try to do it. So we 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 tried it and. It's one of those ones where on paper, like, I don't think the, the three voices and the sounds, like, make any sense. But in the context of the song, I think they do. And that was one of those songs where, like, uh, you know, when we were doing the video, we worked with his mom, with Gus's mom and with his creative team. And it was interesting because it was like we were approaching something completely through the lens of someone else. So there was never a point of, like, let's pour gasoline on this song and, like, try to make it go at radio or let's, you know, do this performance of it or whatever. It was like, let's just let this song be this song and whatever it is, is what it is. And it's cool to watch that. Fall Out Boy's sense of musical liberation is perhaps best underlined by the 12th track on Believer's Never Die, Volume 2. Dear Future Self, Hands Up, is a new tune written specifically for the compilation, which features Wyclef Jean. The band have always been big fans of the Fugees and Wyclef, so this song was a great excuse to try something totally different. I love Wyclef. I think he is so talented in both melody and song construction. From the Fugees, like Fugees is like my jam. I like missed that band so much. And then seeing what he did with Shakira and then just the production he did and the stuff that he did on his own. We talked about doing kind of, we've talked about doing like a ska tempo, a ska type of song for a long time. And we talked about 
we flirted with it a little bit, but like we talked about like it's one of the places like we meet up, you know, or whatever. And so we'd reached out to Wyclef. He was like, I got this idea that I think could be great for your, could really make sense. And when we started working on it, it was like, wow, this is like kind of another one of those songs that's like a little bit bananas because it's just like surf guitars, which is like a Uma Thurman to the most extreme. And uh, it's got a like that thing you do kind of drum beat. And it's just like a pretty weird song. Um, But I think that if anything, like A, that's always what Fall Boys needed to put out with like as far as like our first foot out has to be a weird one. And then like... I think now with the way people like the, how prevalent music is, like how much music there is out there, like you need to be authentic and do something that's like authentic to who you are. If you're even gonna have a shot, because there's just so much white noise and so much, like everyone has a band, everyone is a DJ, you know, like do something that's authentic to you, I think. And that's what this song, I think, makes sense as. And so on to the final song of the second installment of the band's greatest hits, Bob Dylan a track that bears the name of the greatest American songwriter of all time and which was originally recorded for American Beauty, American Psycho. The fact that it remained unreleased for four years seems to still be a point of contention with the band, as Joe and Patrick are more than willing to admit. I've been uh, pu- lightly pushing the revisiting and release of Bob Dylan for yeah. five years, I, think. I forgot it existed. You've been I saying know. it forever. I was like, you guys are all fucking idiots for not putting this song. <laughs> like, this is stupid to not put this song. I'm happy to, um, less that I got my way, because I don't really push very hard, and more that it's just coming out, because I think it's, uh, I hate, I always hated the, uh, I'll just say, I always hated the culture in this band that we would have these cool B-sides, like these songs that would never make on records, and we'd just be like, this song doesn't exist anymore. Now it just doesn't exist. And sometimes they get like, you know, again, like you, like Patrick had said, they would get pulled apart and reassembled into a, a new song. But there'd be, there would always be these leftover songs. I'm like, this song's really good. Why aren't we doing anything with it? So I'm glad, uh, I'm glad I spoke up. I think I just got a little more forceful. Why is that so I really like it. I just think it's a really good song. Yeah. Uh, I think it was, I didn't understand why I didn't make it yeah, to, I, that, to, to that record. And even um, talk about, JD, when I brought it up to him, and I think you had brought it up to him simultaneously, maybe no, Patrick. Up, yeah, I never, I oh, totally I, I it think it's probably then it must have been because I brought it up to him, and he was he was like, yeah, I like listen back to that song, and I was like, why didn't we put that on the record? And I'm like, yeah, I guess maybe I should speak up more often. Internal squabbling aside, Fallout Boy are currently enjoying the second chapter of what is already a storied career that spans nearly two decades. In that respect. Believers Never Die is a title that has a deeper resonance now than it did a decade ago. So what has each band member learned about themselves and about their band after all this time? First, Joe Troman. This is going to sound negative, but I don't mean this in a negative way to stop caring so much Um, and just kind of remove myself from situations and let things breathe and stop defining. I think before the hiatus, I uh, defined myself so much as the guy from this band because you have to keep in mind, like I started Fall Out Boy when I was 17. And so that's all I had known. But uh, and I learned just to stop defining myself by it and I was able to open myself up to so many other things and also, um, yeah, just kind of like figure myself out more, as an, especially like as an adult that had spent so much of his like 
teen years and, and early adult years uh, being the guy from this band, and um, I wasn't doing a lot for me. So, and it, and it allowed me to be able to like kind of slink in and out of this band in a much more uh, relaxed and calm way without um, ruffling feathers or ruffling my own feathers. I'm a clinically depressed man with uh, a fair amount of stress and anxiety, and I'd um, rather it, I'd not focus it on this band. The stress and anxiety, the depression, it's for everybody. But uh, the, the stress and anxiety, I don't think it's good for other people. It's not good for myself. And in a, um, you have to, you know, like being in, in a band that is now big band and has been for a while, it's just like, it's, it's rife with stress and anxiety. <laughs> it's like, that's all it is. It's a lot of stress and anxiety, even though we're at a phase where things are much easier, I think compared to like, um, you know, sleeping on a cat shit floor and then like having to hike, hike like, you know, 300 miles in a van without air conditioning or something. It's a different type of difficulty, but so things are more plush and more done for us. Um, but it, it's still, there's a lot of like, Big decisions to be made, and, and you have to think about being away from your family, and um, just like emotional, and, like mental sacrifices. So, like, I, I think maybe if I can leave my like anxiety and stress that just come naturally out of the band for everyone, and better for me, and less tumors, like grow less tumors. Patrick Stump had a similar view. So, Sia, like, has this amazing thing that I learned from her, which is that, which is that, like, you put everything into it, you know, while records going, and then you just walk away. You know what I mean? Like you put everything into it when you're on stage and then you just walk away. This job, it's harder to separate yourself sometimes. And, and so I think that was the big lesson, maybe another way of kind of restating almost both of our things is that in a lot of ways, I think we learned as a band to like not, because that's a way to, it's, you fight a lot about that shit when you think everything's the most important thing. The last word on Fall Out Boy's current outlook goes to Pete Wentz whose pragmatism and positivity are palpable. I don't know. I think my big takeaway is that I don't really, like, push people anymore, you know, within the band, within the context of the band. I'm like, I think things end up the way they're supposed to end up, and you don't need to, like, turn the wrench until you over-tighten the thing, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, I broke the fucking wrench, and the screw is stripped. This is great. I mean, and I think it's apl applicable to my life just in general. Like, I don't... I think I can be, I can micromanage and I can like, you know, whatever. And I think with, I think it's a benefit of having kids where you're just like, there's just a lot of chaos and it all will work out or it won't and we'll figure it out. But like, it probably will all work out. This episode of Kerrang's Inside Track was executive produced and narrated by me, Ethan Fixell. It was written and produced by Kat Jones with interviews by Dave McLaughlin and talent coordination by Sam Kaur. Additional contributions to the script were made by Phil Alexander and Emily Carter. The episode was edited and mixed by Kieran Kay at Full English Post in Brooklyn, New York. All music was composed and performed by Ben Hutcherson, and our logo was designed by Matt Dykesel. Special thanks to Lauren Hales and Michelle Duffy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Inside Track wherever you listen to podcasts, and visit Kerrang.com for more information on Fallout Boy. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.